Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. This podcast is first broadcast on the 2nd of July, 2021. It's 105 years since the Battle of Somme began in northern France. British and French troops made a gigantic set-piece attack beginning on the 1st of July, 1916. That day would be the bloodiest day in the history of the British Army. 60,000 men killed and wounded. Countless more, no doubt, carried the trauma with them for years to come. My great-grandfather was present at the Battle of Somme. He was actually a general. He was one of those generals who was responsible for the shambles that was the first day's attack. He sat in a chateau, which I visited behind the lines, and he wrote to his wife and said, when the wind blows in the right direction, I can hear the guns. And what he was actually listening to was the sound of a catastrophe. In his sector at Gomcourt, there were no gains to speak of. Some incredibly brave infantrymen fought their way into the German frontline trenches through the wire, where they were then obliterated in a German counter-barrage and German counter-attacks. They fought in small groups till their ammunition ran out, then they fought with their fists, clubs, and knives, until they were wiped out. A few survivors crawled back across no man's land under cover of darkness. In the days that followed, my great-grandfather tried to shift the blame off himself. He tried to blame others. Anyone who's been involved in a gigantic catastrophe knows that the first thing you do is try and say it wasn't your fault. In the case of my great-grandfather, he appeared to blame the men themselves. He wrote to a senior officer, I regret to inform you the men lacked offensive spirit. This is pretty grotesque and is something that has sort of haunted my family ever since. I've met descendants of the men that were killed that day, died as they attempted to cross barbed wire that remained uncut by British artillery. As they held out in beleaguered positions, unreinforced because the plan broke down on first contact with the enemy. And that sentence, written by my great-grandfather, has proved so painful, not just for those descendants, but for, for anyone who studies the battle. I've obviously been to some many times. I have done podcasts from there for the 100th anniversary, right at the beginning of this podcast in 2016. Now, five years down the line, I'd like to repeat one of the best ones from that period, not many of you heard it because the podcast was tiny wee small back then, but I've got Paul Reed here on the podcast to talk me through the opening day and the days that followed what was going on 105 years ago now at the Battle of the Somme. Paul Reed's a bit of a legend in the history world. He is a great historian, he's a battlefield guide. He is behind many of the most successful BBC history TV productions of recent years. He's a great friend, an ally of mine. He's incredibly generous incredibly knowledgeable, has a disturbingly good memory. He can tell you almost where any unit was at any point in the whole of the First and Second World War. He's a bit of a national treasure. He now has his own podcast, thank goodness, The Old Front Line, which I urge you to listen to. And I'm very happy that we're able to give this podcast another outing. The Battle of the Somme would go on from the 1st of July, 1916, deep into November. Over a million men would end up killed or wounded. It was described from the German side as a bloody field grave of the German army, and it's gone down in British history almost as a byword for futile slaughter. But does it deserve that reputation? I'll be talking about that with Paul Reed in this podcast. If you want to listen to podcasts from years and years and years ago, the only place to do that is on historyhit.tv. We've got all the podcasts back there that have now been taken down off iTunes and other places. They've got no ads on them at all because you subscribe to historyhit.tv for a the price of a pint of beer or two, you get membership of historyhit.tv, you get all of these podcasts without the ads, and you also get hundreds of hours of history documentaries. We've got the Great Heathen Army 
in which Kat Jarman takes me on a rampage across England looking for archaeology related to the great heathen army of the ninth century. That's proving very popular at the moment. It's great to see everyone watching that. So thank you very much. So please head over to historyhit.tv to check out the new History Channel. In the meantime, everyone, here is Paul Reed talking about the Somme. Paul, this is the big one. Feels like we've been building up this centenary for years. I mean, the, the Somme's the biggest battle in British history, one of the biggest battles in world history. You've been studying it all your life. You've been walking the ground all your life. I mean, it must be, on one level, quite exciting that the centenary's here. It is. This is the biggest British battle of the First World War and, and really probably one of the most iconic, the first truly industrial battle when huge amounts of artillery destroy the landscape and with it, tens of thousands of lives as well, of course, which is where the poignancy of the Battle of the Somme comes in. Let's start really with the, with the plan. So we got the, we got the war in 1916. The Germans have launched a massive assault on the French at Verdun, trying to bleed the French white. And to what extent is this the British throwing their new army with their new equipment, their new guns, their new piles of shells into battle to try and relieve the pressure on the French? Or what are they trying to achieve here? Well, initially it was a breakout battle. It was to try and destroy the German lines on the Western Front. But the Battle of Verdun gets in the way and it ends up becoming a rescue mission, if you like, to try and relieve the pressure on the French at Verdun to uh, save the day for them, uh, but continue with our offensive on the Somme to try and break the German positions. And it was believed, was it, that this would this is it, this after two years of stalemate or just under two years of stalemate, this would break the German lines, restore the mobility to the battlefield and it would possibly be a breakthrough victory? Well, this really was the big push. Um, there have been battles before, but nothing on this scale, nothing with the manpower and more importantly, nothing with the level of artillery that was prepared for this. With Lloyd George sorting out the munitions factories, they had an unparalleled amount of artillery firepower to drop on the Germans and it really did look as if this would be the battle that would end the war. Bapaum and then Berlin was the much used phrase before the battle. They really were confident that the planning and the huge amount of firepower and the men, huge volumes of men that were brought into the Somme with all those years of training behind them. And we often forget that, you know, some of these men enlisted right at the beginning of the war and have been preparing for this day ever since. Um, so confidence was high. I mean, it's difficult for us to really imagine just how high that confidence was from everybody from privates to you know, field marshals. But this looked to be it. What's the basic plan here? You mentioned this artillery. How long was the bombardment? The plan was what? They were going to absolutely annihilate the German lines and there'd be basically nothing left of the Germans. You'd just walk over the rubble. Is that the idea? Essentially, they believed in the power of the artillery to do the job for them, that you could pound the German positions to oblivion with this unparalleled concentration of artillery. In the end, it was a seven-day bombardment, one and three-quarter million shells along an 18-mile front. And I think, you know, if you were an ordinary Tommy a century ago and and a general said to you, we're going to lob one and three-quarter million shells at Fritz, you're going to think nothing's going to survive that. And the sort of phrases that they used was nothing will survive, not even a rat. And all you're going to have to do is walk across no man's land and we'll occupy the German positions beyond Bapone by nightfall, Berlin by Christmas. And what what sort of shells are they using there, Paul? Because I know shells come in different shapes and sizes. 
Well, the bulk of the artillery uh, that we used for the preliminary bombardment of the Somme, so the bulk of the shells that were dropped on these German positions, was the standard field artillery, the divisional artillery. So these were 18-pounders. And these things could smash up um, German trenches. They could be used effectively with shrapnel, the little lead balls to cut the wire if used correctly. But they would not take out German dugouts. And, and that's where things started to go wrong, is that, you know, the Somme is chalk downland, uh, very, very easy to dig into, solid chalk. And the Germans had been here since September 1914 and had dug deep. And some of their dugouts were 50, even as much as 80 feet beneath the surface. And those shells were never going to reach that sort of distance. What, but what was the experience for the Germans in that seven-day bombardment? I mean, were they just hiding in those deep um, shelters or had they withdrawn troops to the second line? Or what, what was going on on the German side? Well, the, bulk, the Germans never kept... This is one of the things that we learned from the Somme, is that the Germans never kept the bulk of their troops in the forward positions. They kept them in the second and third lines where they had these deep dugouts. And they simply sheltered in them under what they called trommel fire, drum fire, for the course of those seven days, deep underground, um, many of the dugouts with electric light, with generators, cooking facilities, bunk beds, furniture, and so on. So they were safe down there. Um, and although their trenches might have been knocked about by the shell fire, the men that garrisoned those trenches survived. There were very, very few casualties caused by the preliminary bombardment. And what that meant, of course, is that if you've got survivors, you've got men that can man weapons um, and men that can then mow down your advancing troops in no man's land. So before we come to that, though, what, what effect did the bombardment have any positive effect? I mean, it must have smashed up the German trench system a bit. Did, did, what did they do to the barbed wire that was laced across no man's land? Well, they were using shrapnel to cut the wire, which is where you explode a, a shrapnel shell with hundreds of lead balls in the air, like a big shotgun cartridge, and it rains down the balls and it chops the wire up. And if you fire enough of these simultaneously, enough balls come down to take out the wire. But without getting too technical, some of the fuses they were using were not very good. And when you read the accounts of survivors of the 1st of July, they get to the uncut German wire and they talk about uh, you know, an ammunition dump uh, where all these unexploded shrapnel shells are just sitting there in the mud and had failed to explode. So wire cutting was variable, to say the least. In most cases, um, there was a lot of very poor wire cutting, which meant the men had to try and cut the way through themselves which under the battlefield conditions was pretty impossible, really. And the high-explosive shells they used from these guns would smash up the trenches but not destroy the dugouts or the entrances to the dugouts. Although there were some heavy guns from the Royal Garrison artillery, there was not sufficient heavy artillery. And we see this clearly on the southern sector of the Somme, uh, around Mametz and Montabaur, which is where the British and French armies joined on the Somme front. And there the French had surplus heavy artillery and fired the bombardment in, in assistance with us. And a very high percentage of the German casualties on the 1st of July were suffered in that area from this, these heavy guns. The thing is with the bombardment, you can destroy the uh, trenches and you can cut the wire. But unless you've killed the men that garrison those trenches, there's only going to be one result. You know, whether your men walk or run into battle, they're going to be advancing into withering fire from German defenders. And that's, of course, exactly what happened come the day of the battle.
Well, Paul, I, I want to talk to you again over the summer and the autumn because the Battle of the Somme goes on until, well, November, really. But at the moment, let's talk about that first day because that's the one that lives in infamy. And, and it's really, well, it's the bloodiest single day in British history. Approximately how many people went over the top or at zero hour? On the first day of the Somme, uh, well over um, 100,000 men went over the top. I don't think we'll ever know the full total of uh, men that went into battle that day because not every single battalion recorded the battle strength when they went into action. But there were 57,000 casualties in a single day, killed, wounded and missing, of which 20,000 of men killed in action or died of wounds. Uh, and it's, it's easy to say those numbers, but then you start to think about them. I mean, there were more casualties on the first day of the Battle of the Somme than in the Crimean and Boer Wars combined. And uh, when you start to pick apart those casualties, you discover that a very high percentage of them were suffered in the first 30 minutes of the battle, as these guys were exiting their trenches, trying to walk out into no man's land and walking straight into this withering machine gun fire and then eventually shell fire as well. You are one of the most accomplished historians that I've ever worked with. Apart from anything else, you've got the most forensic memory of anyone I've ever met. Uh, why don't you show off to the audience here and, and just tell us about certain battalions and, and some of the losses that they would have sustained just in the first few moments of the battle? Because I'm sure you've got the numbers at your fingertips. Well, I mean, you, you start with Sayre, one of the most iconic uh, areas of the battlefield, where the Powell's, Northern Powell's battalions went into action. And you've got units like the Accrington Powers and the Barnsley Powers and the Bradford Powers and the Leeds Powers that suffer between 80 and 90% casualties. And in most cases, those lads never walked more than 10 or 15 yards from their frontline trench before they got cut to pieces by withering German machine gun fire. Um, so, you know, I mean, the epitaph of those guys is two years in the making, 10 minutes in the destruction. And that just about sums up not just them, but many of the battalions that day. Two of the worst hit is the Newfoundland Regiment that go over the top uh, Beaumont Hamill. Um, 800 Newfoundlanders go into action. 710 become casualties, and, and most of those in between 20 or 30 minutes. So uh, that, that's a terrible loss. And the 10th West Yorks down at Free Corps as well, um, they suffer over 700 casualties of about 800 or so that went into battle. So there was battalion after battalion after battalion that lost over 500 men out of between 600 and 800 men that had gone into action. So these are catastrophic, catastrophic losses for these units. Uh, and within them, so many sad stories of, of individuals. Now, I, I know that everyone focuses on the Powers Battalions. I don't want to focus on them too much because there's, there's, there's stories of losses right across the British Army and, and beyond. But just briefly explain, what, what, what were the Powers Battalions and why, they, why do they get so much attention at the Somme in particular? Well, I mean, the British Army on the Somme wasn't just comprised of POWs battalions, but the POWs are uh, the sort of units that people think of every time of the First World War. You know, these are the eager volunteers from 1914 who'd responded to Kitchener's call and that poster of Kitchener pointing at you, getting you to enlist for king and country. Um, and in the north, because of the close-knit communities, particularly of the industrialised cities like Sheffield and Barnsley, and Bradford and Leeds and so on, um, the idea was to bring these men in from their communities, guarantee that they would serve together and not be split up. This is something that people were worried about. You know, they wanted to serve with people that they knew. And, um, and that was great. That was great because you had fantastic um, morale, you had fantastic esprit de corps. Um, so when it came to training, it was great. And when it came to going overseas, the men were all working together. 
they just never thought about the the ultimate outcome of that. Is that if you commit a unit recruited in a particular location to a battle where there are heavy losses, it's going to throw that community into mourning, which is exactly what you see um, with the first day of the Battle of the Somme, which is why that connection between the Powers and the Somme will always be there. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously, you know, we need to see it in its wider context because there were territorial soldiers from the 56th London Division, for example, fighting at Gomacor on the first day of the Somme. Uh, in many respects, the territorials recruited locally were the first Powers before the war even. Um, but you've got a handful of regulars fighting at Mash Valley at o uh, Overlers and men who'd survived Gallipoli with the 29th Division at Beaumont Hamel. So it's quite a, a dynamic and, and broad army that fights on the storm, not just POWs, but those are the ones that capture the, the public imagination because of the background to them. You're listening to Dan Snow's History. We're talking about the Somme with Paul Reed. More after this. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Talk to me about the plan. Once the guns stop, what is the plan for the British infantry at the Somme? Well, zero hour is 7.30 in the morning. Now, 7.30 in the morning in July, it's been sun up for well over two hours by then, so it's perfect daylight. It's absolutely perfect conditions. And it was a, a period of rain, pretty much as it is at the moment here on the Somme, uh, leading up to the battle with heavy rain, muddy fields, 
muddy roads approaching the battlefield, but then it changed, and the 1st of July was this perfect summer's day. So soon called it a, a sunlit picture of hell. The reason why we attacked in broad daylight goes back to the origins of the Somme, in that it was a, a Franco-British offensive that we were fighting with the French, and the French were not trained to attack in the darkness, so in, in many respects they dictated the time of zero hour. But of course it didn't matter, did it, if it was broad daylight, because nobody survived the bombardment. And when these lads exited their trenches, in many cases they put white tape out in front of our wire to show the men where to stand to await the orders of officers to move forward. And once the men were assembled, the whistles were blown and the momentum of the attack begins. And these guys just walked straight into, uh, on most sectors, what can only be described as machine gun oblivion. Was that plan fundamentally flawed? Were the generals stupid and, and ignorant? No, it, it, it was flawed, but they weren't stupid and ignorant because nobody really would have predicted a, a different outcome because we were not aware of the depth of German constructions on the Somme. The French had not really captured anything of any significance that gave us insights into this. The level of intelligence gathering before the Somme was good, but you know we didn't have infrared equipment to see deep into the ground, so we had no idea. We knew that they had dugouts, but we didn't know that they were that deep. We believe the Germans, like us, kept a lot of men in the front line, which they didn't. So there were all there were lots of factors that broke this plan down and doomed it to, to failure. But the biggest one was the belief that artillery could could just be the weapon that would destroy the Germans and that you would just send men over to occupy ground that had already been captured by the bombardment. That that was not a good plan, and, and it was shown to have been... Uh, grave error to approach the battle from that from that perspective but generals of the first world war are often lambasted it's easy to criticize men who lived in chateaus and in apparent luxury compared to men in the front line but a general's job is not to be in the front line trench his job is to uh, simulate information and make a plan based on that intelligence and you can only do that in an area where you can have your staff you can have your maps you can have your air photos but it was only part way through the war while there were some men that were good at it there, there were others that were not as good at it and of course that can have an effect on the plan as well perhaps i'll do a different podcast paul you and i've worked on a project about my great grandfather who was a general at the battle of the somme it's something i've had to live with all my life so it's something we can perhaps explore another podcast another time you look at general snow he was a good defensive general in 1914 and then again at combray but he, he lacked the ability to, to go on the offensive, and, and he wasn't alone in that. There were many generals that, that, that you could probably categorise like that. But as the war moved on, new generals came in, commanders were appointed, and, and people learned. Now, that is, you know, we can look at that now from the point of view of a century and understand that the British Army learned from these terrible days on the Somme. But what's, what's hard to reconcile is the cost of that learning, uh, and the cost is, is human lives. Yeah, indeed. The Somme wasn't uniformly appalling. There were, there were parts of the front, there were parts of the sectors of the front line where they didn't get bored beyond 10 metres of their own trench. There were other parts where they actually did break into German defences. Can you try and talk me through, perhaps from south to north, from, from the south where the, where the French were cooperating with the Brits up to the north? Well, in the southern sector between Mametz and Montabar, um, that's where there was some success, where the bombardment had done more of its job there and the heavy artillery had smashed in. Uh, German dugout positions and the troops there were able to advance not without casualties I mean they suffered losses there but they were able to achieve their objectives 
and then the further you go north, the worse it gets. And although there are some areas, the Ulster Division at Thiepval, for example, I mean, they actually attacked before zero hour. So their guys were almost on the German wire when the barrage lifted. Nevertheless, although they got into the German lines and got to their immediate objective, the Schwaben Redoubt, within the first hour of the battle, the Germans reacted very quickly because we hadn't silenced their troops defending it. We hadn't silenced their artillery and they were able to drop a box barrage down on no man's land, seal it off, prevent us from sending over ammunition, supplies, more men, and then hit our guys in the Schwaben Redoubt with counterattacks uh, and gradually destroy us over the course of the day. So even where there were some areas of success because uh, of the German quick reaction to it and also the rigidity of the British plan, so you had situations where uh, men went into battle and machine gun positions had been missed. Now, ideally, you'd have an artillery liaison officer with you to call back the fire to take out that machine gun post or strong point or whatever it is. But they didn't exist on the first day of the Somme. No one could call back that artillery fire without the express permission of a senior officer. You're kidding. I didn't know that. So there was a rigid fire plan for the entire day that was, that was completely inflexible. It was. It was too inflexible. Yeah. There were occasions in which they managed to get past that. There was an occasion at Serre, for example, where a forward observer saw the Germans having annihilated the Powers battalions. He saw them mustering for an apparent attack and was able to convince the gunners to drop down fire and, and take that out. But that was very rare. That was very rare. You know, if you then contrast that, as the battle moves on, that changes. So that artillery men get embedded with infantry units as they go into battle to react to situations on the ground. And that's really still a fundamental tenet of, of warfare right up to the present day. Absolutely, yeah. Fire control officers of whatever part of the services it is are, are important. Infantry is only as good as the artillery that can protect it. And that was true 100 years ago, and that's true now with mortars and rocket fire and artillery fire and everything else. And airstrikes, of course, now. So I think that's one of the real tragedies of the song that people don't understand as much, is that even in the when the infantry did manage to break into the German frontline trenches, they would then become isolated from the British support behind them because no man's land is actually this terrible obstacle. It is. And because soldiers can carry a lot of gear, but only a certain amount of uh, material. And the first thing that normally runs out is small arms ammunition, the ammunition for their rifles. Although the average soldier was carrying probably 150, maybe in some cases 250 rounds of ammunition, which was a heavy weight in its own right. But uh, that soon uh, disappears if you're in a serious firefight with the enemy, which some of them did get into. Uh, But the tragedy on most areas is that there were many, many men that went over the top that day that never once fired their weapon because uh, when they went over, the weapons were not cocked because the last thing you want to do is accidentally pull the trigger and shoot your mate in the back as he's in front of you. Uh, They had bayonets fixed, but uh, they were not cocked weapons as they moved forward. And the only time that they would have had an opportunity to actually use them against the enemy is if they got isolated from the main attack and were then able to fight. Or, as in the case of the Ulster Division, they got into the German trenches and and were fighting them in their own lines. But that was rare on the 1st of July. So by nightfall on the 1st of July, what shreds of success existed up and down the battlefront? The only serious area of success was to the south, uh, between Mametz and Montabaur, where the majority of uh, the German positions had been taken. Danzig Alley Trench between Mametz and Montabaur had been taken. There was, I mean, this characterises the problems of 
command and control on the battlefield is that there had been an opportunity that day to advance even further beyond Montauban, beyond the stated objectives, but the reserves were too far back and, and no one was willing to commit themselves to a bold plan. Um, and then the ground beyond that would take days, if not weeks, to eventually be taken uh, in, in the battles that, uh, that followed. So some success there. Elsewhere, pretty much failure. I mean, there was a few small instances where the sunken lane at Beaumont Hamill had been annexed. Troops in no man's land at Beaumont Hamill connected up shell holes to make a new trench and push the line forward 75 yards or something. But, you know, at the cost in that area of over 5,000 casualties. So was that a, a success? And down at La Boisselle with the Lotnagar mine crater, that was a small pocket that had been taken by the British. The survivors from an entire division were dug in around that. There have been over 6,000 casualties in that area. More than 10% of the casualties on the 1st of July were suffered there. So while there had been little footholds here and there that were eventually exploited, the, the terrible losses in, in achieving even those tiny bits of success were just so high. Paul, you've been a military historian and battlefield guide for for decades now. You've met a lot of men who fought on the Somme. What, what, what are some of their? What are some of the impressions you got from those men who sadly now have all passed away? Well, I was very lucky in the 1980s to interview over 300 Great War veterans, in particular men who fought on the Somme. There's a few things that they they always remember. I interviewed a lot of men that fought at Serre with the Powers Battalions, and they all remembered the bombardment there um, finishing just prior to zero hour. And that there was this momentary pause in the din of battle between the end of the bombardment and then the beginning uh, of the attack. And in that pause, it wasn't exactly silent, but it was not as noisy as it had been before. And above them, they all remembered hearing the skylarks chirping away above the battlefield as if life was normal. And that they took that memory to their dying day, really. Uh, it, it defined their connection to the Battle of the Somme. And it was something that would take them back to that day very, very easily if they heard it while they were later in life, wandering around Britain, wherever they were. But most men saw men that they'd grown up with, that they'd trained with, walk into battle and and never come back. And that had a profound effect on them as well. But the interesting thing is that very few of these men ever had regrets. They they said they never would have missed it. For anything, it was many of them referred to it as the highlight of their lives. It was a defining moment in their life, and they were pleased to be part of something that was bigger than them. And when we look back at the Great War from a hundred years, it's often difficult to understand the pride that these men had in their service, just the way that modern servicemen have pride in service in Afghanistan or Iraq. Soldiers in the Great War were exactly the same, and it's something that we should remember more often, perhaps. That's something very hard to explain to a more general audience. I've never had more abuse about an article I've written than when I said many soldiers enjoyed the First World War. That's uh, That was record levels of abuse on Twitter and Facebook for that one. But, uh, but as you say, you know, that that's uh, something very important to understand. Listen, Paul, you are... Um, so prolific on Facebook, on, on Twitter. You're Somme Court on Twitter. That's S-O-M-M-E-C-O-U-R-T. You're one of the one of the biggest military history tweeters in the world, and I urge everyone to follow you on that one. How can people keep abreast of the amazing things you're up to at the moment? Well, I've got my uh, World War One Revisited YouTube channel where I'm putting some uh, video blogs on there to do with the Battle of the Somme. I've got some of my drone footage on there of the battlefields as they are today at Sayre and around High Wood and so on. 
and I'm going to be tweeting a lot of photographs to do with the Somme in the lead up to the 1st of July and around the 1st of July period and onwards through all 141 days of, of the Somme campaign because the Somme wasn't just defined by a single day. It, it often is, but it wasn't. The battle continued and there were many, many important instances within that period, the first use of tanks, the dawn attack on the 14th of July and all these need to be remembered as well as the catastrophic first day. Cheers, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of Dancing's History. As I say all the time, I love doing these podcasts. They are the best thing I do professionally. I feel very lucky to have you listening to them. If you fancied giving them a rating and review, obviously the best rating review possible would be ideal. It makes a big difference to us. I know it's a pain, but we'd really, really be grateful. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts in our ever-increasing stable, don't forget we've got Susanna Lipscomb with Not Just the Tudors. That's flying high in the charts. We've got our Medieval podcast, Gone Medieval, with the brilliant Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman. We've got The Ancients with our very own Tristan Hughes. And we've got Warfare as well, dealing with all things military. Please go and check those out wherever you get your pods. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.